Good morning, everyone, and welcome to church on this beautiful sunny morning. We're happy to see you here. Let's stand and worship God together in song this morning. Your Majesty, you are. 
sermon is going to be about God's miracles and the miracle of pointing us back to salvation but in amongst that and always ever in springtime I feel like singing great is thy faithfulness and I feel like singing creation sings the father's song and um, in my Facebook feed it popped up that last year at the same time we sang creation sings the father's song so it's just a beautiful song a reminder of how um, 
Jesus came into the world as a second Adam and he saved our race. And uh, to me, that's the greatest miracle of all. God. 
Thank you for that music. That was great this morning. Again, <laughs> you guys do an awesome job. Our call to worship this morning, if you want to read with me out of your bulletin. But as for me, I trust in thee, O Lord. How great is thy goodness, which thou hast stored up for those who fear thee, which thou hast wrought for those who take refuge in thee. We're here to worship God this morning and, and praise Him. And just let's bow and pray that we can do that with all our uh, ability this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for such a beautiful morning. Thank you that we could come and gather together today. Just uh, pray that you'll open our hearts and minds and remind us that we are here to worship you and listen to your word this morning. Help us to open our hearts to what you have to say to us this morning, that we can use it throughout the week. In Jesus' name, amen. reading this morning is in Acts 9, 32 to 43, I think it is. <clears throat> As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Anias, who was paralyzed and had been ridden for eight years. Anias and Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat immediately. Anias got up, and all those who lived in Lydia and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name was Dorcas. She was always doing good things and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydas, Lyda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him Please come at once. Peter went with them. And when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the windows, all the widows stood around him, crying and showing him 
the robes and other clothing that Dor Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and he prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed the Lord in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. this morning and uh, now as we uh, look into this pastor scripture that Keith just read let's, uh, let's just ask God to guide our thoughts so let's pray Lord God we want to thank you for your word to us and thank you Lord that we can have it in our language that we can have it in in front of us and readily available and we can just uh, hear what it is you're saying to us and the Lord as we look at this particular passage this morning in the Bible uh, I really want to pray that you would take your word what you've given to us and put in there for a reason. Uh, you just take it and use it to speak to our hearts and help us, Lord, to understand what it is you're saying. Uh, help me, Lord, just to just to be so in tune with you that it would be actually you speaking this morning. And uh, yeah, Lord, we, we just give the service to you and ask you to feed us. And bless us from your word and from this service together. In Jesus' name, amen. A young boy came home from Sunday school, uh, and his mother asked him what he had learned that day. And he answered, we heard about a man named Moses. He went behind enemy lines and rescued the Israelites. Then he came to the Red Sea and he called his engineers and they built a pontoon bridge. And after they got across, he saw the enemy tanks approaching, so he got on his radio and called headquarters and they sent the dive bombers and blew up the bridge. And then the Israelites rode on. <laughs> and the mother responded with a rebuking tone, Now, son, it wasn't like that at all, was it? <laughs> and the boy answered, Well, not exactly. But if I told you how the teacher said it really happened, you wouldn't have believed that either. <laughs> and I think this boy hit on something that is likely an issue for, for some people. There are stories in the Bible that are hard to believe. And the reason they're hard to believe is because they're miraculous. There is supernatural activity going on. And if you have a skeptical mind, it's a bit hard to accept them as real and true. One person quipped that 
One thing that casts doubts in his mind on the miracles of Jesus is that they were all witnessed by fishermen. That's a bit of a dig at fishermen, by the way. <laughs> Can't believe a fisherman. <laughs> but the Bible does record many stories and many instances of miraculous things happening. And it does so very matter-of-factly. Uh, it just simply states that it happened, that it was the work of God, who stepped in and did something miraculous, did something supernatural. The struggle that some have as they read the Bible, and it seems like there's so many miracles happening all the time, and, and today it seems like there's, they're rarely seen, if at all, they would say. And so that causes a conundrum in their minds. What do you make of miracles? The passage we come to in our series through the book of Acts today is a passage that records for us two miracles. We're getting back to our series after taking a break for the Easter season. So the passage we come to today is the one that Keith just read for us, uh, Acts 9, 32 to 43. So hopefully you're there in your Bibles and have it in front of you there. Because we've been away from Acts for three Sundays, let's, let's remind ourselves of where we're at in the, in the story here through the book of Acts. The end of chapter 6 through chapter 7 of Acts records for us the ministry of a man named Stephen. The Holy Spirit used this man Stephen powerfully to do some amazing signs and wonders and preach the gospel with great effect in the city of Jerusalem. It caused quite a stir in that city with the result that Stephen was arrested by the Jewish leaders and brought to trial before the Jewish High Council, which is called the Sanhedrin. In his defense before the Sanhedrin, then Stephen preached just a great and a powerful sermon and a convicting sermon to the members of the Sanhedrin, culminating in Stephen telling them that Jesus, whom they crucified, was the Messiah, and that he had been raised from the dead. Well, that got Stephen commanded to be stoned to death. And with that, there, they, the Jewish leaders, unleashed a great persecution against the Christians in Jerusalem. So much so that many of them scattered out from Jerusalem into the surrounding towns and villages. And probably even further afield. In chapter 8, then, the focus shifts to the ministry of a man named Philip, who went and preached the gospel in the city of Samaria. <coughs> Excuse me. And also to an Ethiopian eunuch on the road to Gaza. We looked at both those stories, if you remember. So that was chapter 8. In chapter 9, the focus shifts again, this time to a man named Saul. Saul was a very strict Pharisee who believed that any follower of Jesus should be persecuted and probably killed. And he obtained letters of authority from the high priest to go to the city of Damascus, quite a ways north of Jerusalem, and arrest the Christians there, bring them back to Jerusalem to stand trial and put in jail. But this man Saul was stopped cold on his, in his tracks on the way and stopped cold by an appearance of the risen Jesus himself. And Saul came to realize that Jesus was in fact the Messiah the Old Testament promised. And so Saul repented of his sin and accepted Jesus as the Savior, his Savior. And then he began to preach the gospel. First of all in Damascus, and then later on in Jerusalem. And then he began to experience persecution from the Jewish leaders. 
to the point that his fellow Christians had to get him out of town and go to Caesarea. So that brings us to the passage we're in today. Chapter 9, 32 to 43. The focus shifts now back to Peter and his ministry during, during this time. And this passage, like I said, tells us a, of a couple of miracles that happened in conjunction with Peter's ministry in a couple of towns. Now, I'm going to say straight out, right up front here, that I, I struggled a bit with, with this passage in the sense of, of coming to an understanding of what the message is in this passage for us. What is the message for us in this passage? The emphasis in this passage seems to be on these two miracles and the effect of those miracles. That's what these verses are about. And as I studied it and prayed over it, and I, I, I guess the message from this passage needs to be about miracles. And in fact, throughout Acts, and especially in the first half of Acts, there are many miracles recorded that happen in conjunction with the Apostles' ministry of preaching the gospel. So I came to the conclusion then that we should use this passage as a springboard into a sermon about miracles. And think through a bit of a theology of miracles. How should we rightly understand them? How, how do they fit into God's plan and purpose for mankind? What's the relevance of them for us today? So that's where we're going to go with this sermon this morning. But first, let's quickly go through the story these verses tell. So we all understand what's going on, and then we'll look at the application for us. So let's quickly go through the text and go through the story. Last time we see Peter, where we saw Peter, he was in Samaria, if you remember. Him and John had gone to see about the ministry of Philip in Samaria, and the reports of many Samaritans accepting Jesus as their Savior. So Peter and John went to Samaria. And after realizing that the Holy Spirit was definitely at work there, and these people were genuinely accepting and placing their faith in Jesus, repenting of their sin, and accepting him as Messiah. Uh, Peter and John prayed over them. These new Samaritan Christians received the gift of the Holy Spirit then as well. We looked at that. Uh, and then Peter and John headed back to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many of the Samaritan villages along the way. It tells us that back in chapter 8, verse 25. That's the last we saw of Peter. And now, chapter 9, verse 32 we see that apparently Peter continued traveling and we assume preaching the gospel along the way in the towns and villages that he came to. And so he came, in verse 32, to the town of Lydda, or Lydda, I'm not sure how the correct pronunciation of that is, but anyway, he came to that town and there was a group of Christians there. It says he came to the saints there in Lydda. Lydda was a town west and a bit north of Jerusalem, getting close to the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And obviously, while Peter was ministering to the saints at Lydda, Peter ran across this crippled man named Aeneas. I'm assuming that Aeneas was a part of that group of saints there, but that's an assumption. It doesn't say that outright. But anyway, Aeneas had been bedridden for eight years because of a paralysis that he suffered and was laboring under. He couldn't walk. And he'd been bedridden for eight years. And Peter came upon him and 
Peter just spoke to him and said, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Arise, make your bed. That's a literal translation, make your bed. It means pick up your mat that you've been laying on and, and walk. <laughs> it's kind of the meaning there. And that's what happened. Aeneas arose and he walked. He was healed. Verse 35 tells us that all who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him walking and healed. And they turned to the Lord. Sharon. Sharon is the coastal plain along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. It's called the Plain of Sharon. So this is saying that this miracle was seen and known to the people of Lydda and also to those living around Lydda in this coastal plain called Sharon. And it is significant that the result of this miracle was that the people who saw it and then saw this paralyzed Aeneas walking around perfectly healed The effect of that was that the people realized that the message preached by Peter was in fact a message from God. The miracle proved that. And so they accepted the gospel message and they turned to the Lord. And apparently the news went a bit further. The focus shifts in verse 36 to the town of Joppa. Joppa was right on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. uh, About 12 or 13 miles kind of west-northwest of Lydda. If you have maps in the back of your Bible, you can look at them and you can see them there. It's about 12 or 13 miles away from Lydda was Joppa. Uh, It was a significant port town or city on the Mediterranean Sea. At any rate, there was a disciple of Jesus Christ there at Joppa. Her name was Tabitha. Translated to the Greek, it would be Dorcas. Both those words mean gazelle. Uh, One's Hebrew and one's Greek, but they both mean the same thing. She was a woman of remarkable kindness and works of charity. That's what it says in my translation. She was known, she was remarkable because of her great generosity and her kindness and her works of charity. Tragically, Tabitha got sick and died. And so they washed her body in preparation for burial later in an upper room. But the disciples there in Joppa had heard that Peter was in Lydda. And so obviously the miracle of the healing of this paralyzed guy at Lydda became known in Joppa as well. And so these grief-stricken disciples there at Joppa sent a couple of people, a couple of men, to go get Peter over at Lydda. And at their urging, it seems, now the impression I get when I read that, it seems like they were quite insistent, at their urging, they, Peter, Peter went with these men over to Joppa. And when he got to the house where they had laid Tabitha in the upper room, and where the disciples were obviously still there, mourning and grieving and weeping over her death, they brought Peter to the upper room where Tabitha's body was laid. The widows were there. They were weeping. They were showing Peter all the tunics and garments that she had made. And in her kindness had given to them. Seems likely to me that these widows, who were likely people that were in need of some help, that they were the recipients of Tabitha's kindness and generosity. Maybe they were even wearing the clothes that she had made. Well, Peter then asked them all to leave the room. And then he knelt down and prayed. And after he prayed, he turned 
to the body and said, Tabitha, arise. Tabitha opened her eyes. When she saw Peter, she sat up in her bed. Peter gave her his hand, helped her stand up. And then he called the others back into the room and presented Tabitha to them alive. It was a great miracle of healing. In fact, raising her from the dead in answer to Peter's prayer. And notice the result of this miracle, verse 42. It became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord, it says. So it's the same result as the miracle back in Lydda, back in verse 35. So verse 43 then ends the passage with informing us that Peter stayed in Joppa for many days, staying with a tanner named Simon. And that sets us up for chapter 10, which we'll look into next week. Uh, just to note here, it's interesting that Peter stayed with a tanner. Uh, I'm sure Simon the tanner was a good Christian man, but he was in the business of tanning hides. And as such, he would have been in constant contact with dead animals. He and his house would have been considered unclean by any good Jew. So it's interesting that Peter stayed there. Maybe Peter's starting to relax a bit in his strict adherence to the ritualistic laws of the Old Testament. At any rate, that all sets us up for chapter 10, which we'll look at next week, which is a very interesting and very actually pivotal chapter in the book of Acts. So that's coming next week. That's your teaser to come back to church again next week. <laughs> so that's the story of this passage. It's about two significant miracles that took place through the Apostle Peter and the effect those miracles had on the people. That being that many turned to Jesus as their Savior because of them. That's the emphasis of these verses. So what can we learn about miracles from this? And that's kind of what I want to look at. We need to understand the truth about the miracles that God performs. And to look at the implications that come out of this passage will help us understand better the truth about miracles. Now, just a few disclaimers before we go any further. Um, this sermon will not by any means be an exhaustive study on the theology of miracles. It's not going to be that. That would take 10 sermons. Or 12, or 15, or whatever. But as we look at the implications that come out of this passage, we will use that, use these implications as kind of a springboard to go beyond this passage a little bit and look at the broader picture or the broader teaching on miracles in the Bible. But I will say up front, I'm going to leave much unsaid. Because we just don't have the time to look at everything. We'll just focus on some basic truths that we need to know to correctly understand miracles. So the first implication coming out of this passage that I'm going to look at and talk about is that, number one, God alone does miracles. God alone does miracles. In verse 34... When the healing of the paralytic took place, notice that Peter says, Jesus Christ heals you. So Peter didn't heal this guy. <laughs> Jesus healed this guy. In regards to Tabitha, or Dorcas, verse 40, we see much the same thing. Peter didn't say it outright, but I think it's obvious. Peter knelt down and prayed, and then he told Tabitha to arise. So it shows that it was God who raised her from the dead, not Peter. 
God, in answer to Peter's prayer, healed Tabitha. But it was God who did the miracle. In both cases, Peter was the person God used to perform the miracle, but it was in fact God who performed the miracle through his servant, Peter. And this is a truth that remains consistent throughout the scriptures. God alone does those miracles that bring glory to him and advances his kingdom. He's the only one who can. Well, I'll just add, Satan can do supernatural things. But those will be for the opposite purpose. And they are always subject to God's higher power. And that's another discussion. But my point is, people don't do miracles. God does miracles. God will often work through a person, or use a person to do a miracle. And that will be a person of God's choosing for that time and place. But it is God alone who does miracles. Before we go any further, I think I need to, or we need to understand a couple of things First of all, what is a miracle? I found that different people have different definitions for that word miracle. What's a miracle? What we're talking about here are those occasions where the usual natural order of the physical world is overridden and something that is otherwise physically impossible happens. For the sake of this sermon, that's what we're talking about. Like this paralyzed man being able instantly to walk, be healed, like Tabitha or Dorcas, becoming alive again after she was dead. Or we could go on and think about the rest of the miracles we know from the Bible. Jesus walking on the water, feeding 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Those are miracles. So that's the definition of a miracle we're working with in this sermon. Finding a parking spot at Walmart during Christmas season is not a miracle. <laughs> you know, I couldn't find a parking spot, and I prayed, Lord God, please let me find a parking spot here. And then, sure enough, he did a miracle, and he gave me a parking spot after I ordered it six times through the... <laughs> no, that's not a miracle. <laughs> the fact that Gloria agreed to marry me as much of a wow factor that that is, and as unexpected as that may be, <laughs> considering how much she could have done so much better, <laughs> but that's not a miracle. So many times I've considered it that, but, <laughs> but no, that's not a miracle. For the purpose of this sermon, we are talking about those times when something otherwise physically impossible occurs for the purpose of glorifying God and advancing his kingdom. That's the definition of miracle that we're that we're talking about here. And second, because God alone does these miracles, that means that God is sovereign in the working of those miracles. He decides when and where and whom, not us. And as much as we would like to, and as much as some people try to, we cannot force or manipulate or, co or coerce God into doing a miracle. How many times did the Pharisees or someone else try to get Jesus to perform a sign or a wonder for them? If you are the Son of God, show us a sign. <laughs> and Jesus said, no, I'm not going to show you a sign. 
I don't do miracles just to be sensational or to dazzle people. And by asking that, Jesus kind of said, it shows that you don't get it. You don't understand what I'm here for. That's kind of my paraphrase, but that's kind of the message Jesus had for the people that always wanted a sign. God has his reasons and his timing when it comes to miracles. And we at times, we don't understand it because God's ways are higher than our ways. And we just can't understand it. But God always does what's right. And so he's sovereign when it comes to doing miracles. He will decide when and where and whom. So friends, don't get the idea that God is someone at your beck and call who is committed to obeying your desires and requests when it comes to miracles. Don't get that idea. There may be times when you are desperate, and I think we've all been there when we're desperate. We're feeling desperate. We really feel, God, you need to do a miracle here. And you're so you're tempted to try anything to get God to do the miracle. Maybe if I pray in just the right way and use just the right words, God will do the miracle. Maybe I would get one more church to put it on their prayer chain. God will, God will have to act. Maybe I would get some pastor or some spiritual leader to pray over a piece of cloth and, and lay it on my head. Maybe then God will do a miracle. Or maybe if I get a hold of some faith healer and get that person to come and pray, maybe then God will act. Please, friends, be careful of that line of thinking. That is very much rooted in our sinful nature where we think we can use God for our personal benefit or comfort. God alone does miracles, and that means he is sovereign as to when and where and whom. We can ask. We'll get back to that in a bit. But we don't give orders. It's not our call. And I know some may ask, well, why in Bible times were there so many miracles that God did and now there are hardly any? What are we doing wrong? And I think that question is based on a bit of a misunderstanding. What are the Bible times? The Bible covers a time span of just over 4,000 years. And if you have read the Bible and are familiar with the storyline of the Bible, yeah, you do see periods where God does lots of miracles in a short period of time. But you would also see that in that 4,000 year period covered by the Bible that there are periods of many hundreds of years where there's not one miracle recorded in all those hundreds of years. We need to remember that. Friends, miracles by their very nature, the miracles I'm talking about here, are the exception. They're not the rule. They're the exception. Do they happen? Yes, they happen. But they're the exception. They're not the rule. We live in a world corrupted by sin. And so we have sickness and disease. It's a result of sin. That's what happens because of the sin in the world. Every single one of us will get sick and die. Unless the Lord comes back first. Every one of us. 
are going to get sick and die. Some sooner than others, some later than others, but it's going to happen to all of us. That's the world we live in. It's the wages of sin. Because of sin, we have natural disasters which kill people. Because of sinful world leaders, we have wars. You're seeing right now where innocent people are killed. That's our world. That's the sinful world that we live in. Now, Jesus will return and put an end to all of that. But until then, that's the world we live in. As Christians, we're called to live in this world. Jesus told us straight out. He didn't come to take us out of the world. But that we would live in the world. And be a witness for him. So we're under the same consequences of sin as anybody else. That's the usual course of events. We have sickness, we have disease, we have tragedies, we're going to get sick and die. That's the usual course of events. Miracles, where God chooses to act to override those consequences, they, yeah, they do happen, but they're the exception. They're not that common. I know one person quipped, if they happened every day, they wouldn't be called miracles. They'd be called regulars. <laughs> I'm not sure I fully agree with that. Miracles are still miracles no matter how often they happen. But you get the point. They're exceptions. They're not the rule. So then, what is God's purpose for doing miracles? What makes him to decide to do one here and not there? Or for this person and not for that person? Next point, number two. God's miracles serve to demonstrate the truth of the gospel. God's miracles serve to demonstrate the truth of the gospel. As much as God is sovereign in his working of miracles, and as much as we, with our human minds, can never understand the ways of God, which are so much higher than our ways, but we are given some hints in scripture as to what God is up to. We need to understand the plan of God and the purpose of God in the whole unfolding of human history. Because God works according to his will and to his plan and to his purpose. God created a perfect world, a perfect universe, which mankind spoiled by disobeying God and bringing sin into this world. And because of that sin, as I've already said, there is a curse on us. And on our world, and in fact on the universe. That's described for us in Genesis chapter 3. Because of sin, there is now death. Things will break down and die. We will get sick and die. That's the result of sin. Consequence of sin. There's death. Things will wind down and quit. And not just physical bodies, but everything winds down and quits. Nothing lasts forever. Nothing will go on indefinitely. Because of sin, back in Genesis 3 it says, it has become hard to make a living. You've got to work. Because of sin, there's pain in childbirth. Serpent will have to crawl on his belly. It's going through the things listed there in Genesis chapter 3. There are difficulties now in relationships. It's another curse, result of the curse that's listed there in Genesis 3. Difficulties in relationships. We all have a deep selfishness in us. It's a result of that sin nature we all possess. And that makes relationships with others difficult. 
And there's discord and breakdown in these relationships. So that's the curse of sin on the world, on the universe. But God has a plan to get his creation back. And that plan is still unfolding. It was, is a plan that will, will unfold in stages over thousands of years. That plan included the flood in Noah's time, where God wiped out everything and started afresh. It included the Tower of Babel, where God acted to force people to spread out over the whole earth. That plan includes the separating, or included the separating of one person out from the rest, and from that one person and his descendants build an entire nation through whom he would reveal himself to all the other nations. That person was Abraham, his descendants, the Israelites. Included in that was, God, was that God would use this nation to bring to this world a Messiah. God the Son. To live a perfect life and then die to pay the penalty for the sin of the world. To conquer the curse of sin, which is death. And then to rise again to conquer death, that great curse. And then through that, offer forgiveness and cleansing to all who believe and repent of their sin and place their faith in Jesus. And then give them a home with him for all eternity. His plan will culminate when Jesus returns and brings it all to an end. And creates for us a new heaven and a new earth where we will all live as Christians in eternity, in a place of perfect peace and harmony and perfection with our Father and with our Savior. That's God's plan. We're in that part of his plan between Jesus' first coming and second coming. And I went through all of that. I go through all of that to remind us that when it comes to God working miracles, it has to fit into that plan. And what we see from scripture is a bit of a pattern. When God unfolds his plan for the ages, it seems like with each unfolding of a new phase, it comes with a flurry of miracles where God directly intervenes in the affairs of this world and with supernatural activity. And once that phase is established, the miracles kind of wane off. I believe you see that pattern repeated several times in the Bible. For example, you see a lot of miraculous activity at the time of creation, obviously. And then, at the time of the flood. And then again, when Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt and established them as a nation, as his chosen people. A lot of miraculous activity happened then. And then when Jesus came to this earth, to bring in and establish the new covenant. A lot of miraculous activity happened then, around when the time when Jesus was here. And then in the future, when Jesus returns, there will again be a flurry of supernatural activity from the hand of God. In between times, there are still miracles happening, but they are more of a sprinkling of miracles. That's a pattern I see throughout the Bible. So applicable for us today here, when Jesus came to earth and established the new covenant, it included, 
much miraculous activity. That's when you read the New Testament, you see all the miracles happening. God had told the people throughout the through all the prophets for hundreds of years before Jesus came that they will know Messiah when he came by the signs and wonders he would perform. For example, back to Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35, verse 4 and 6. Let's read that. See if you can beat me to it. <laughs> Isaiah 35, verses 4 through 6. The prophet Isaiah writes, Say to those anxious hearts, Take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy, for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arab. That's one example. An Old Testament prophet saying, Messiah comes, you're going to see these. That's how you'll know Messiah. Because of these signs and wonders he'll perform. And so then, for that reason, then flip over to Matthew 11. Matthew chapter 11, uh, when John the Baptist asked Jesus through his messengers, are you really the Messiah? Are you the one that was promised to come or should we wait for somebody else? John the Baptist was in prison at this point and he had sent his messengers to ask Jesus about that. And what was Jesus' answer? Matthew 11, verse 4 and 5. Jesus answered and said to them, go report to John the Baptist what you see and hear. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. <laughs> Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. So there's a fulfillment of the prophecy. When Jesus came, he showed he's the Messiah by the wonders, and the signs, and the miracles. And then Jesus told his apostles, his disciples who became the apostles, that as they spread the gospel after he left, Jesus told them that he would confirm the truth of their message with signs and wonders and miracles as well. So Jesus did say to his apostles, when you go spread the word, I will confirm your message. You're going to do the signs and wonders. In fact, you'll do greater works than I did, Peter told them. Or Jesus told the disciples. So that all who are willing to see and hear would realize that God was bringing in a new phase of his great plan of redemption for mankind. And that's why as you read the book of Acts, which is the story of the apostles spreading the gospel to the world around them in obedience to Jesus' command, we see that their preaching, the gospel, was confirmed by signs and wonders and miracles. Many times miracles of healing. If God was giving his confirmation to the message they were preaching as he started his church, this new phase, the new covenant. And as people heard the message and saw the mere signs, if they were at all open to the word of God, the message of God, they would see and realize that this message isn't a fact from God. These apostles, they are actually teaching the message of God. What they're telling us is from God. The miracles and the signs and wonders show it, prove it. And so then now back to our passage here in Acts chapter 9. Those in Lydda and Sharon who saw the miracle, the healing of the paralytic, they turned to the Lord. 
Because they realized, yeah, what Peter was preaching was the truth. It's from God. The miracle proved it. In verse 42, when in Joppa, many heard about the raising of Tabitha from the dead, they believed in the Lord. God's miracles served to demonstrate the truth of the gospel message. And hopefully bring people to accept it and accept Jesus. And church history has shown that this pattern kind of continues. Church history has shown that as the apostles died off, much of the miraculous activity died off as well. The church was established. They had served their purpose. Now, there are still miracles happening. <laughs> but we are in that place now where they are more of a sprinkling than a full-scale flurry like it was during the time of Jesus and the apostles. So, what does that mean for us today in Canada in 2022? Does God still do miracles? Certainly. Certainly he does. It won't be often, relatively speaking. It will be when he decides, for whom he decides, and always in accordance with his plan of redemption. It won't be merely to satisfy anyone's selfish desires or need for something sensational. It won't be for that reason. God is sovereign in the working of his miracles. So what do we do? Well, there's nothing wrong in asking God to work. <laughs> nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong in asking God for healing, for example. In fact, we're told to. That's biblical. James chapter 4, verse chapter 5, pardon me, verse 14 and 15. We're given instructions. If anyone's sick, pray. <laughs> Call for the elders. Come pray over them. We did that for Natasha, by the way. <laughs> nothing wrong with asking God to intervene in the situation in a powerful way. We can ask. Nothing wrong with asking. We're encouraged to ask. God tells us, make your request known unto God. That's what Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians. Make your request known to God. But we do so knowing that he alone does the miracle and he is sovereign as to where and when and whom. It isn't something we can force or coerce or manipulate or bring about through anything we do other than we pray with faith. With faith. Faith that God can do the miracle and faith that he will do the miracle if he chooses, and faith that if he chooses not to, that he will provide all that we need to keep on going without the miracle. But remember, God's miracles serve to demonstrate the truth of the gospel. So therefore, we see from this passage the implications that help us understand better about miracles. The truth about miracles. There are Number one, God alone does the miracles. And number two, God's miracles serve to demonstrate the truth of the gospel. Now, I know that this is not exhaustive in any way. There is much more that could be said. Maybe it's raised more questions for you than it's answered. <laughs> Maybe there are some here who don't quite agree with what I've said. The challenge for all of us is to keep searching the scriptures and come to a better understanding of the truth. The scriptures are our only source 
of absolute truth that we have. That's where the answers lie in the scriptures. All we need to know about the miracles of God is taught right here in the Bible. If it isn't there, we don't need to know it. And let's all as Christians go on living by faith in our God, even in areas where we don't understand. And there will be areas in this discussion that we don't understand. There will be things that don't make sense in our heads. We're dealing with God. God's ways are higher than our ways. Far above us, we will never be able to understand the mind of God, obviously. So we go by faith that God is doing what is right, because we know he will. Let's take our time of silence, and I just invite you to spend some time in silence in your own heart, listening to what God may be saying to you this morning. What's the message that you're hearing from God for you today? I'll give you a few moments. Let's stand and sing together. Everything we can give you 
between that one and this next one was actually the man who waited nine years to be able to walk, um, to be healed. So that one is God is God alone. He'll do it when he wants to. And um, this next one is Psalm 130, which was written um, as kind of a repentance one and kind of a reminder that wait for God.